turn it to Proverbs 4. The message title is The Path of Life. Proverbs 4, beginning in verse 1. Solomon writes, Hear my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law when I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. He also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom, and in all your getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. And it says, do not turn to the right or the left and remove your foot from evil. Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word. I ask, Lord, that you'll open up our eyes to see the path of life and direct our hearts and our minds and our wills that way in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 4, really, it's a positive chapter, and it's about how we can live and how we can have true life. Some of these themes are kind of recurring. They'll come back, but as I'll say in a little bit, they're not ever exactly the same. He talks about the path that leads to life, and one path leads to darkness. And what everyone wants here is not the path of darkness, but everyone, I believe, wants life. That's the way it is. Live life as God intends. That's what we want. Jesus, in John 10.10, he says, The thief does not come except for to steal, kill, and to destroy. That's a path, and that's the path I was on. That's the path, really, everyone in here at one point was on in their life. It's a path we were headed to destruction. Doesn't matter who you were, when you were born, how old you were. But Jesus went on to say, he says, I have come that they might have life and that they may have it more abundantly. God's abundant life. And that's what we want, even though that's not what we deserve. Now, the Jews have the expression, lahayim. I think I even had the little guttural sound in there. And that means to life. And generally, they would use that when they would give a toast at a wedding. They would toast or whatever to Lahayim, the couple's well-being and their health. So, you know, an old fiddler on the roof, 
they had a toast and a song. They're all singing and they're all happy when uh, the daughter gets engaged. And, you know, one of the verses they said, may all your futures be pleasant ones, not like our present ones. Drink Lahayim to life. It was kind of a funny little song. Actually, they had more verses than that I thought were pretty humorous anyways. When one Jewish person, for instance, would say to another one, Lahayim, they're speaking health and well-being to that person. That's what everybody wants. And the trouble is, most people, they are like Tevya, the guy that was this big man in the show. And they think that life, Lahayim, comes through if I were a rich man. And that's where they're always like, if I was a rich man, I could really have life. That's not the life promised here in Proverbs, nor it's really not the life that our Lord Jesus Christ talked about, material prosperity, because Jesus said this in Luke 12. He said, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. That's not what we're seeking. I mean, what we should be seeking is the kingdom of God. And Paul said this, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not eating and drinking, but it's what? It's righteousness, peace, and joy. That's what we should be seeking. Jesus says you seek that. Make that the priority in your life and all those other things that Tevye was after will be added unto you till more than supply our needs. And I like the New Living Translation of that verse. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life. So we're saying he's come to bring us life, living a life of goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. When you have that, you could have nothing. And Proverbs talks about that. And you could have life abundantly, couldn't you? Goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. God is, our Father is the great giver of life. We sing that song. You're the giver of life. You're the river of love. He is the great giver. And he wants to give us that abundant life that only he can. How does that come to us? It comes through the grace and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how life comes. And I saw this quote from an old preacher named Thomas Chalmers that I liked. And he said this. He says, even when we see the stupidity of our sins and how empty they are and how they only make us sad, that realization still does not change us. We start changing only when we see Christ. When we see that Christ will make us alive in ways our most darling sins cannot. When we see that in Christ, we are not losing anything but our damnation and gaining everything we desire in our own deepest intention. So he really will give us true life is what I'm trying to say through all that. And it may not be what we think. It's not what the world thinks for sure. But it is true life and it will fulfill our deepest desires. So like I said, this chapter is a chapter of life. You can see that in verse 4. He says there, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands and live. And you look in verse 13, it says, take firm hold of instructions. Do not let go. Keep her for she is your life. And in verse 22, it says, he says, don't let your commandments, my words depart from your heart. And he says, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. And he goes on to say in verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence For out of it springs what? The issues of life. And that's what it's all about. The abundant life. That's what he's promising us here. So we want to look at the first nine verses. Tell us how the children, how children, how young people, that's who he's really writing to, but it's to all of us, how to get on that path of life. 
At first glance, when you look at these chapters, it seems like each chapter is a little redundant with the father pleading with his son to hear, to pay attention, to receive, to not forgive his instructions. I mean, we've heard that kind of time after time again, I think about eight times up to this point. But let me say this, the Bible is not redundant. It may repeat itself, but it's never redundant because the word redundant means words that are no longer needed or useful or they can be admitted without loss of meaning. If the Bible repeats something more than once, it never becomes no longer needed to be heard and it no longer loses its meaning. The reason God does that is the reason he keeps saying, listen up, pay attention, give heed, remember, don't forget is because we are prone to do every single one of those things. And we need to be reminded like more than once, twice, three times. The things I preach here, I preach at prison. I'll look at my messages and pray about it. And I generally, I'm not at this point, I'm not coming up with brand new messages for prison. But I'm telling you, it's my own message. But I'll go back. I'm re-preaching those three sermons I preached on the union with Christ. It edifies me. Because it's not like, well, I remember every jot and tittle of everything I said. And it's my sermon. It reminds me of things, encourages me of things. And it's like, I don't look at that being like, well, man, this is redundant. How many times do I have to preach this? I could preach it another four times once a month. And I'm telling you, it would be edifying. Not because it's my sermon or I'm preaching. I'm just saying the thought that's there about our union with Christ. We constantly need to be reminded of things, don't we? And that's why he keeps saying sort of the same things. But none of these introductions, like I said, are exactly the same. All the listen, my sons. And this is the longest one. And he brings in and builds on what he said in the previous ones. We have a father pleading again here with his children. Verses 1 and 2. Hear my children the instructions of a father, of a father, and give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine and do not forsake my law. He's talking to children for one thing this time. It's no longer just a son. He's talking to plural, his children. And he says, I'm going to give you good doctrine, good doctrine, what's morally right, the right thing to do. I wish my dad had sat down. I mean, there were times my dad did that. But it wasn't like consistent instruction and godliness and this will set you on the right path and how to avoid evil. All the things he's saying. I mean, but here this father is saying, you know, as a kid, there's a lot of times it's like, I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. But when you do that as a father, as a father, you sit down and instruct your teenage son or maybe you've had it done if you've got a godly father in here. And they're doing you a big favor like you don't know. And God's using them to say, this is what's ethical. This is what is morally right. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to give you good, sound, moral, ethical teaching. Pay attention. I mean, that is a blessing, right? And so he's like, trust me. Just listen to what I'm saying. It's good teaching. So here's what we need to understand, parents, for those that are in here with little kids, and we do still have some, but... We need to understand that parents above all others have the most influence, the most opportunity, and the biggest responsibility to speak into their children's lives, and especially when they're young. That's when they are very impressionable. And that's when they'll tend to, like, they believe almost anything dad or mom says, and they'll stand up for that almost to a point of embarrassment. Well, my dad told me that's the way it's got to be, even though sometimes they get things mixed up and it's not exactly what you meant when you said it. 
the more you read these introductions, hear my children, the instructions of a father and all that. I give you good teaching and the things he says. Only a parent can have that kind of true love and concern for a child. And I think when a parent talks to a child that way, they understand that. They understand that they may not like it. They might rebel against it somewhat, but they know that they're saying this because they do love me. I think deep down children know that. The reason that all is, is because God has designed this world. It's the way he's made it. Parents have the authority. They don't have to earn it. They have it. Now, they may lose it because they abuse it, but God has given us the authority and the children recognize that authority and love. It's just built into us. It's built into this creation. And I think that's where we have the right and the authority. and We don't have to apologize if we speak to our children in a loving way about the Lord. Amen. And I think that's what he's telling his children. That the wisdom he desperately wants to pass on to them. And this is what we have, the new part we have here. It was passed on to him. He's saying, what I want to tell you, it was passed on to me from my dad, my father, David. Look, that's what he's saying in verse 3 and 4. He says, when I was my father's son, he's David's son. He says, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. He also taught me, he's saying. My dad taught me, he's telling his, his kids. And he said to me this, let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. So how do you get on the path of wisdom? Well, one way, children, and all of us, is to realize that wisdom is an inheritance. We're talking about godly wisdom that's passed on from one generation to another. We're not born into this world with a godly inclination, with godly wisdom like we automatically know it. It's got to be taught us. It's an inheritance passed on from previous godly generations. Faith in the Bible was passed on from Timothy to Timothy, from his mother Eunice, and from her mother, his grandmother Lois, wasn't it? That's the way it was. That's three generations of faithful godly parents passing down the truth of God's word. And when did all of that start with these people? Because they were Jews. They knew what the Old Testament said in Deuteronomy 6. They would have started when they were children. They don't wait till they're teenagers. You wait till you're teenagers and it's way too late. Because Paul told Timothy, he says, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we don't do this in our church. This is not our church culture. But it used to be over in Scotland and different places. And there are still some churches where it's in their church culture. They will do what's called catechisms. And they have like the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And basically what that is, it'll give a question. They're all brief. And then it'll give an answer to that question that's biblical. Most people don't do that. But I'm telling you, that is a really good way of learning catechisms or ways of having you know devotions with your family or however you do that that's not going to save your children but it sure isn't going to hurt them i mean they're going to have something there a foundation in their heart for that god can use and deal with them and they said when revival came to scotland the fact that those parents were diligent in catechizing their kids and all that it just made it to where god could work with that that word was in them and bring them to repentance and bring salvation and revival in that land so it wasn't like they all had to start from scratch because their parents had been diligent in obeying the Lord. So we're talking about this from one generation to another. I remember one time I was at a church visiting and Caleb has had us do the baby dedications here, which I'm not opposed to that. 
it doesn't save anybody and all that, and we understand that. I saw a, it was four generations standing on that platform at that church where they were doing a baby dedication. Went back four generations. Went back to that grandfather and right on down the line. And that's something. I thought that was pretty neat, actually. And I knew who the parents were. I knew the guy from the seminary. And I'm thinking, he's going to be carrying on that tradition. That's probably why he's at the seminary, because it started back with the grandfather sharing with his father, praying, not just sharing, but praying. And that's just how it moves on. And that's the reason God says we're to have children, to raise a godly seed, not just to have somebody to take out the trash. That's what that works about. So I talked to this prisoner last night. There's a few of those guys there that I'm like, to me, they are genuinely saved. I've known them for a while. This guy I've known since back in the 90s, been going there. And I hadn't heard all of his testimony, though, and he's getting released. He had a life sentence. He should have never gotten out of there. He's been up for parole 11 times. But I want to say this part of his testimony. So he told me, he says, you know, my grandfather, my grandfather, he said he had a Bible that thick. But it wasn't just that it was that thick. His grandfather read that Bible all the time. He would quote that Bible all the time. And more importantly, he said, I saw my grandfather live it. And he said he ran a nursing home. And he said his grandfather, that old guy, and he was in good health. He said up to the day he died, he lived to be 102 years old. I don't know that he was running the nursing home at 102 years old, but he was running that nursing home well past his 90s. And he says, here he is. He's in better health, getting around, his mind sharp than most of the people that were in his nursing home because God blessed him. And this guy saw that his dad abused him big time and he got into all of that. But when he got his sentence and he's not justifying anything he did, just the opposite of that. But he said when he got his sentence and was committed with a life sentence he said what came back to him his grandfather and he said because of that and he saw the effect that that bible reading and the things his grandfather had shared with him the one thing he did is he says i committed myself to reading my bible all the way through for one year and he said i still was a mess and i still wasn't saved but he said faith comes by hearing a word and he got saved i mean he got genuinely saved as far as I could tell. We'll talk a little bit more about what he had to share on Sunday because he's sitting here telling me all this. I thought, thank you very much for two good sermon illustrations. But that's the point is, you don't know the effect you're having on your kids and with your Bible reading and quoting script and talking to them and talking to them in the way, bringing it into practical applications in their life. Not just we have to have this formal setting, but talking to them and bringing the word in and the Lord in to the different situations that come up as you're along the way. But in saying that, isn't it up to each generation? They have to believe for themselves, though, don't they? Isn't that what Solomon's saying here? Because Solomon, he's talking to his children. Well, one of his sons became king and he was probably one of the worst kings. You know, just because your parents taught it to you, that's not any automatic entrance into the kingdom is it each generation has to believe for themselves so the parents have the responsibility to teach and live the word in front of their children but each generation has to have their own faith we read this in judges 2 it says so the people served the lord all the days of joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived joshua who had seen all the great works of the lord which he had done for israel and then it says when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers 
another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. That generation, it's just, I'm sure their fathers talked to them and all that, but this, they didn't know the Lord. That means they were not saved, didn't know him in a saving way. I'm saying that happens too many times. The generation loses respect for whatever reason of what their parents say, even if they're godly parents. I just see that happening. <laughs> and that's what's happening a lot today, losing respect for the words of their parents and elders. And they're trying to break away from that authority in a lot of different ways that's being manifested. Now, just the other day, I uh, know about this young boy that's taken lessons in something from an older man. And the man tried to correct something the boy was doing. And to me, it's like this guy that's correcting him is five times older than the boy he's teaching. And the man that's the older man is an expert in his field. Now, if that was me, I'd be like, tell me everything you possibly can and anything you see you're, I'm doing wrong. Help me. And instead, it's like he doesn't know what he's talking about was the boy's attitude and laughing about it. I'm thinking that's just not the way things work or should work. Just that lack of respect there, because it's like you got things upside down. So Solomon's saying to his kids, listen to me. This is what my father told me. And here's the other thing. It's not like he's bringing in David. People knew about David, didn't they? And his grandchildren would have known about David. That, hey, I'm telling you, this is what my father told me. And he was a man after God's own heart. And I'm giving you good, sound, ethical teaching that I learned from him. David has passed away by this point. His life had done what? Here's what we need to see. His life had stood the test of time. He died a godly man. And so in some degree, our lives are still being tested. But what I'm trying to say, and I think this principle is here, is that there is a wisdom that's in the saints of the past that has stood the test of time. So with certain men, there's a reason, just like with certain hymns, there's a reason that certain hymns we still sing and other ones we've never heard of. Part of it's their doctrinal content. Part of it is the tunes one that's, you know, you kind of tend to like. But it's the same with godly men. There's a reason why the biographies and the writings of certain godly men are still being read. And some of them have been dead over a thousand years. I'm saying there's something to be learned there. And a troubling thing for me when I'm just I'm not criticizing the seminary, but I'm just saying this is just a fact. When I would have to do reports or put together a paper for something, generally I was told you don't want to use old sources. Anything before almost the 1990s. And I'm thinking truth hasn't changed. So I'd put them in anyway sometimes and get some notes and points deducted, I guess, or whatever. But I'm like, that's dangerous to me. If you're going to say we only want to study and we're only going to listen to these guys from the 1990s. Oh, no, I'm not saying that's across the board there. Okay, you know, I'm not giving you all the wrong impression. But that did happen more than once. I can read and read and be blessed by George Mueller, just for instance, Jonathan Edwards, John Calvin. I never had read much of John Calvin until actually I went to the seminary and got introduced to him. Man, that guy, he was a pastor, mainly a pastor. Most people think of him as, oh, it's Calvinism and all this hard stuff. Nothing like that. He was a godly man, had a heart for his people, and that guy has a ton of wisdom. Ton of wisdom. And same with Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Everybody thinks that he's this hardcore fire and brimstone preacher. Well, he had some of those messages, but the facts are he had more messages on the love of God than on the wrath of God. 
I'm reading a book of his right now on love and its fruit, and it is great. It's great. Or Gordon Lindsay. There's a charismatic that lived back in the 70s. That guy had a lot of wisdom in, in him. He did. I'd recommend any of his writings, that, at least what I've read. They've been very good, very sound. What do we know about these people? We know they're holy men, and for the most part, you're not going to agree with everything these guys say. Most of the men I just named are non-charismatic, so I'm not going to listen to what they say on that necessarily. There's just a whole lot of wisdom there, though. These men had a heart for God, and they had a heart to be holy and not to excuse things. What they write, I feel, is a lot more trustworthy and their wisdom is a lot more trustworthy than a lot of the newer books coming out. So some of the new books are good. I've got some, but I've got a lot of old books or the ones I like to read. And C.S. Lewis, he's another one. He's got a couple good books I read. There's a lot of things he says I wouldn't recommend. But I like this quote of his. He says, for every new book, go and read an old book. Every new book you read, go and read an old book. And I would say, go and read two old books. I think you're going to be a lot better off. And throw the new book away. No, I'm just kidding. Something like that. We'll just move on here to verse 7. And it says, wisdom is the principal thing. That's what my new King James says. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. So when it says wisdom is the principal thing, that principal thing, that word there really means it's the finest. It's the best. It's the choicest. So that same word is used in 1 Samuel 15, 21, when it says the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things. That's the best. And so he's saying wisdom is the best thing you can get. You want to know how to get on the path of life? He's saying that's what you need to strive for. That's what you need to see. That wisdom is just not something to take for granted, but wisdom is supreme. The supreme thing to be desired. And that word for get, get wisdom, is actually, it's a word for spend money on, to acquire something with money. He's saying whatever the cost, wisdom is the supreme thing. And whatever the cost, you need to, to spend whatever the cost is to get wisdom. And with that, get wisdom, get understanding. And that's how to apply that wisdom. And that is the first step. How to get on the path of life. It's a determination in your heart that I am going to get wisdom above all else. Making that your priority. So moving on here, my second heading is how to stay on that path. And... Basically, you've got to hold on to wisdom like your life depends on it because it does. And look what we have here in verses 10 to 13. He says, Hear, my son, receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. He says, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in right paths. And when you walk, your steps will not be hindered. And when you run, you will not stumble. In verse 13, he says, Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, he says, for she is your life. So we got to hold on to wisdom like a mountain climber holds on to his lifeline. To let go of that, it is death. And that's what he's telling us there in verse 13. Take firm hold. Grip it tight. Grip it like a bone in a bulldog's mouth that it's not coming out. And he goes on to say, keep her. Guard her well is what he's saying there, for she is your life. And the key metaphor, really, the expression that's used in these verses 10 through 20 is path. And we have that here in verse 11. 
He says, I've taught you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in right paths. In verse 14, he says, don't enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. And over in verse 18, it says, but the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. And we've talked about this before, and it's in a sense he's talked about being on a path before, but all of life is a journey. We're on a path. The fact that we start off on the right path is no automatic guarantee that we'll end up on it, is it? Because there's a constant battle to stay on the right path, the path of life. Solomon gives us that warning here is in verses 14 and 15. It's a warning. Now, it's not a threat. The thing is, the sheep, though, will heed the warning that he gives us here. What is it? It's verse 14. He says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Don't walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. That's what he's saying. There are, I know we all know this, voices calling from everywhere to try to get us on to the path of the wicked and off the path of righteousness. So the temptations to do that are alluring. Well, what we need to understand is every path we take off the right path and detour to the right or to the left, which he warns us in the last verse not to, that's a step into darkness. And the power of darkness to keep us on that path and not to get back to the other is more powerful than we realize. It really is. We can think, oh, well, I'm just going to go do this thing. Oh, no, you don't know. It starts becoming a hat. Next thing you know, you are hooked, and it's hard to get off. It's really hard to get back over where you know you should be. And that's what he's warning us here. He's saying, don't go off that path. Don't get off into bondage. And when I was reading that, it reminded me of Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know how many have read that book. But in Pilgrim's Progress, at the beginning, Christian walks with faithful. The two of them are walking on the path towards the celestial city. And they've gone through a whole lot up to this point in the book. It's about page 100 of my book, staying on that path. They're in a wilderness. And they're almost, it says in the book, they're almost out of that wilderness that they've gone through. And up comes evangelist. He meets them and he commends them for their faithfulness and enduring all the trials and getting up to that point. He encourages them to finish the race. And I want to read this part to you. Here's what he says to them. I thought this is significant. He says, the crown is before you. It's an incorruptible one. And I'm thinking, at this point, I think we need to hear this. It's an incorruptible one. So run that you may obtain it. Some there be that set out for this crown, and after they have gone far for it, another comes in and takes it from them. So he says, hold fast, therefore, that you have, and let no man take your crown. He says, you are not yet out of the gunshot of the devil. You have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. He says, let the kingdom always be before you and believe steadfastly concerning things that are invisible. And then he said this to him because he knows where they're entering on that path. The evangelist does. And he says, let nothing that is on this side, the other world, get within you. And above all, look well to your own hearts and to the lust thereof, for they are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He said, set your faces like a flint. You have all power in heaven and earth on your side. He said, you've got to watch what you let in your heart. That's what we're read here in, in 423. Keep your heart with all diligence. Like I said, he knows what's coming. What's coming, if you read the book, is called Vanity Fair. 
It's a town. And when they come out of the wilderness, they arrive at Vanity Fair. And here's how John Bunyan describes Vanity Fair. Because I'm saying there are temptations trying to allure you off the path. And that's what we have here at Pilgrim's Progress. And here's what he says. He says, Vanity Fair is no new erected business, but it's a thing of ancient standing almost 5,000 years ago. Isn't that true? The allurements of the world that will take you off the path of righteousness, what we're facing today, we're not facing anything new. It's been around since Adam and Eve. 5,000 years ago, there were pilgrims walking to the celestial city as these two honest people are. And Beelzebub, Apollyon, and Legion with their companions perceiving by the path that the pilgrims made that their way to the city lay through this town of vanity, they contrived to set up a fair. A fair wherein should be sold all sorts of vanity and that it should last all the year long. The world never lets up, does it? It goes from one thing to another, and it lasts all the year long. He says, therefore, at this fair, all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lust, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, bods, wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, Blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot. And moreover, at this fair, there is at all times to be seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. And I'd say, take the apes out and you've got our world today. It's not changed. This was back in the 1600s that John Bunyan wrote that. It isn't that what the world's throwing at you? He's saying, that's when you go through that city, you're going to see all of that stuff. And they're trying to get you to buy into all of it, Christians. And he goes on, he said, they didn't have any choice. They couldn't avoid the town. The devil set that right there because we can't get out of this world. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, I don't pray for them to get out of this world, but that you keep them safe, Father, in this world. And when they went through the town, they said there was no small stir amongst the inhabitants of Vanity Fair when these Christians walked in there. And there was three reasons it gave. First one was that the pilgrims dressed in such a way that was different from any clothes sold at the fair. I look at that like, you know what? If a young lady wanted to dress modest, what would the world think of her today? I'm not about modest. And it says in Pilgrim's Progress, that these two were called fools and outlandish because they wouldn't dress like everybody else. The second thing it says, they not only did wonder at their clothes, but also at their speech. And Bunyan wrote, for few could understand what they said. They naturally spoke the language of Canaan, but they that kept the fair were the men of the world, so that from one end of the fair to the other, they seemed barbarians to each other. It's like, we don't understand that language you're talking about, trials and trusting the Lord and whatever. We don't talk like that. So they got two different languages passing with each other, and that's the way it ought to be, shouldn't it? That's the way it ought to be. And the third thing it said was the pilgrims would not even look at the things sold by the merchants of the fair. Bunyan said, and if they called upon them to buy, faithful and Christian, if they called on them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, Turn away my eyes from beholding vanity. And they would look upwards, signifying that their trade and traffic was in heaven. In other words, their affections were in heaven, not on all this worldly thing that the world's trying to get them to buy at Vanity Fair. 
And so one of the merchants, he said, mock them. And he said, well, what will you buy? And Bunyan wrote, but they looking gravely upon him, gravely upon him, said, we buy the truth. And it said at that there was an occasion taken to despise the men the more, some mocking, some taunting, some speaking reproachfully, and some calling upon others to smite them. Those of you that know the story, one of them didn't get out of the town of Vanity Fair because they captured these guys. They're saying, you guys are causing a big stir up here in this town of Vanity Fair. You're messing our town up. You're not going along with everything. Put them on trial. And Faithful ended up being executed because he wasn't going to be worldly. And speaking against it, you read the book. It's a good book. It's worth reading. So what's the end of this path, this path that they're trying to get you on, the evil people, the path of the wicked, where he says, don't walk on it. It's there in verse 19. For the way of the wicked, it says, is like darkness. It says they do not know what makes them stumble. The deceiving thing is the path of the world, there's a lot of, you know, you look at Broadway in New York City. Oh, man, there's a lot of light and glimmer, and it seems like a neat place to be. And that's really not what it is. It's not what it appears to be because it appears to be light and life, lively. Everyone's having fun. But the end, the Bible teaches, is what? Just the opposite of that. It's darkness. This man, and I'm not speaking against him. I don't really know anything much about this guy, this chef that died over the weekend, Chef Anthony Bourdain. The thing about him, though, I guess my wife and girls have seen him a few times, and, you know, mostly it's just him going around the world eating his food in these exotic places, but, you know, he lived a life that most people would only dream and think of, and they think, would think, this would fulfill my dreams. I'd love to be him. So he would stay at five-star hotels all around the world, I mean, with gorgeous views in gorgeous rooms ate at the best restaurants, ate these exotic foods. And I'm saying he wasn't a bad-looking guy. I mean, he had girlfriends, a wife, or whatever else. But yet, his craving, he ate all this food, but his craving was never fulfilled. And you know what that craving was? Craving to be loved. Craved love. His wife, he divorced and remarried her, had a kid. She divorced him again, or one of them. I don't know how that worked out. And then he had this girlfriend, some young movie star, and his friends said they're concerned about him because this guy is crazy in love with her. And they said too much in love with her. It was going to be a problem. Well, she was last seen with some other guy and not with him. I think that just messed with him to the point of just all of this. And they said he was being overworked. Lisa was telling me he was staying in these five-star hotels. That sounds great, but he's by himself. And I stayed in a five-star hotel, the King David Hotel. I was staying there one night on a trip I made with the seminary to Israel. And that room was unbelievable. I'd never seen a room like that. Literally. I told Lisa, though, I said, you know what, though? I only liked it because you were with me. I said, I couldn't imagine going to that place again or staying in a bunch of those places all by myself. As nice as it was, as all the features it had, just unbelievable stuff, so plush or whatever all else. It's nothing if you're by yourself. It's empty. And that's what we have here. You look at that, that path, it appears to be full of light and life, and it's not. It's a path of darkness. The man took his own life. That was the end of that. Compare that to look what we have here in verse 18. It says, but the path of the just is like what? It's like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. 
may start off as a glimmer. You just get saved. And that path for me, it was very difficult for me my first few years getting adjusted to being a Christian versus to what I was. But do you have that little glimmer of light? The person that gets started on that path and God has set them on that path, they have the hope that the sun's just beginning to rise. It's going to keep rising and getting brighter and darkness is never going to overtake that. And that's when we taught that in Philippians 1, 6, because he who began a good work in you, that dawning of that light, he will complete it until the full day, won't he? <laughs> complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. And how does he do that? How does that light start dawning and getting brighter and brighter and brighter? Does it happen all at once? Do we go from dawn to noon all at once? It doesn't happen that way, does it? What does he say? What is he promising that step by step, like we sing the song, step by step, he'll lead us. And step by step, we have to be making decisions to stay where he's leading us. And that's the warning. Don't start taking steps the other way. It doesn't matter how long you've stepped on that path. You've still got to step by step, stay with the word, no matter how old you are. Because a lot of those old kings, they started veering off and they've been faithful all that time. And we don't want to end that way. It doesn't have to end that way for us. So here's the key. Here's the key to not having that happen. It's in verse 23, to not getting lost or off that path of life. Chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Diligently we have to walk every step we take, and it never lets up. And we do that by guarding our hearts. I like what Matthew Henry had to say about that. He said, God who gave us these souls, the souls we have. He gave us a strict charge with them. Man, woman, keep thy heart. That's what he's told all of us in here. We must maintain a holy jealousy of ourselves and set a strict guard accordingly upon all the avenues of the soul. Keep our hearts from doing hurt and getting hurt, from being defiled by sin and disturbed by trouble. Keep them as our jewel, as our vineyard, Keep a conscience void of offense. Keep out bad thoughts. Keep up good thoughts. Keep the affections upon right objects and in due bonds. Now that's a mouthful right there, isn't it? I really like what he's saying there about we need to keep our conscience void of offense towards God and man. That in and of itself will go a long ways, won't it? If we're going to be diligent about that with our hearts. So he's saying here that our heart is described as a well or as a spring of water, that it either flows out to life or what else will flow out? It could be corruption. And I just heard this testimony of a minister that was on a, a missions trip. And he says they're eating this food. And he says, all of a sudden, everything's tasting terrible. I mean, nasty. Everything's tasting nasty. Well, all of the water in the village he was staying at came from one well. One of those guys got down there, got inside that well, and up he brought was the dead, rotting, I don't mean to be gross, I think everyone's done eating dinner, right? The dead, rotting corpse of a cat. It was polluting all of that water supplied. All of it was tainted. You could say the same principle applies to the heart. The heart becomes tainted and then everything it touches, just like that water, it corrupted everything. And so what's Solomon telling us here? He's saying corruption doesn't come. And Jesus said the same thing. It doesn't come from without, but it comes from within. 
within our hearts. So life flows from where? It doesn't flow from the outside in, does it? It flows from the inside out. And Jesus said in Mark 7, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, Jesus said, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. So the best defense with our hearts is a good offense. So what do we need to do? We need to keep our hearts filled with living water. That's the key. John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And whoever believes in me, he said, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we need to drink in the forgiveness, the promises, and the love of our Lord Jesus Christ to keep our hearts pure, don't we? We do. And not only the love for him, but the love for other people. Solomon, he goes on and he basically describes keeping our hearts by describing body parts. He talks about your mouth, our feet, and our eyes. Look what he says in verses 24 to 26. He says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Let your eyes look straight ahead is what he says and look out right before you. So it's a fact that where you look and focus is where you will end up. They don't give driving school here in Kentucky and it's pretty obvious. But I had to take driving school up in Ohio, and one of the things they teach you when you take driving school is that if you want to stay in a straight line on the road, where do you look? You don't look right in front of you. You pick a point down the way, and you focus on that, and you will automatically drive that car in a straight line to that point. Or if you've ever mowed grass, if you care about your lines being straight, you'll pick something, and you'll just stare at that thing, and you will go straight at it, and you'll have a straight line. That's why people in all over the world, I guess now, anyways, they aren't picking a point down the road. Their point is like right in front of them like that. And that's why they are all over the road. <laughs> that's a little joke. It wasn't much of a joke. Or the same principles, or like we're throwing cornhole over the weekend. For me, if I'll look at that hole and not just look in the general area of when I want to throw it, but if I'll look in that hole, it generally, your body will just cause it to go towards that hole sometimes, right? <laughs> the older you get, the less your body is doing what it ought to do. But I was talking to Thomas about that. It's For me, it's hard to keep that concentration on that hole. My mind wants to wander or whatever. It's easy to just kind of throw it in that general way, but to just focus in on that hole, it's hard. But I find if I can do that, my success rate goes up somewhat or... I'm, you know, in golf, it's the same deal. All these guys that are, that are golf instructors, they'll tell you that the problem with most amateurs is they're swinging down at this ball and their focus is on that ball. And they said, the pros, you'll see them, they'll stop and they'll stand behind the ball and they're looking down there and they're picking a spot out there. And then when they're swinging, they're seeing the ball, but their mind, they're swinging that club, they're swinging at a spot out there. The point is where your mind and where your heart is, a lot of times that's where the ball will go if you're thinking that way. That's just the way it is. That's the way we're made. It's the same with our hearts. So if we keep our minds, our hearts, and our affections on the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom, we will get there. Just like your cornhole thing will go in the hole. Just like your golf ball will go where you want it to go. Just like your car will drive straight. 
But you've got to keep that focus out there, and it's hard to do. There's a lot of things. It's a discipline. There's a lot of things trying to distract your mind from doing that. And that's what he's saying. It's not going to happen by accident. We're not going to end up in the kingdom of God just by accident, are we? That's going to take a lot of discipline, a lot of keeping our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what caused Peter to start drowning, falling in the water, because he was having trouble focusing, wasn't he? It's hard. It's not easy. And so look what he says here in verse 26. He says, ponder, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Don't turn to the right or the left. It's easy to do. Remove your foot from evil. And what's he saying? Young people especially need to listen up. And all of us really, young people, because you need to think about where, ponder the path of your feet. Where is this decision? Are you looking down the road or are you just looking at your toes? Because where is this decision you're making going to take you? We can't just be mindless and let the world just steer us along life's way, right? We'll end up who knows where. I heard today on this Al Mohler program he has every day. I don't usually listen to it that much, but I just happened to today. And he was talking about that the people in Alabama, Alabamians, they voted down back in 1999. They were trying to bring in the state lottery. They said, we don't want that here. We're the evangelical Bible Belt. We don't want gambling in our state. They voted it down. So the former governor, who was the governor back then of Alabama, said that now these evangelicals seem to be changing their position. And he used the word, Al Mohler brought this out, unwittingly. And Al Mohler's like, wait a minute, that word unwittingly. What that means is they didn't do it because they had a premeditated conscious decision to allow this in. But he's saying it's just the opposite. They hadn't thought through the consequences. They're not thinking through the moral standards that they're letting down. Instead, the governor's saying, and Moeller agrees, they're just letting in the influence of the secular world come in. They're loving the fact that they love sports and they, oh, sports gambling, what's the big deal? Alabama football and the fact that they're getting tired of all that money going out of state and that's you know the argument they use back here in Kentucky when we started our state lottery and all that his point was they haven't really pondered this is what we need to do with everything every decision we're making we need to ponder we need to weigh out is what the word means to give careful thought to where this decision I'm gonna make on a daily basis and sometimes long-term decisions where that decision is going to end. Because that's what he's asking us to do here. Ponder the path of your feet. See where this decision is going to end. Where is it going to take you? What you're watching, this movie you're watching, reading the book you're going to read, marrying, dating, whatever this person, hanging out with the people you do, listening to the radio program, the news, whatever it is, on their talk show what you're about to commit yourself to, where is that going to lead you in the end? Ponder, he says, the path of your feet. Because we are all on a journey. That's what this is telling us here. And we want that journey to end in life. If we make the wrong turn, that's what he's telling us in the very last verse. Don't turn. You make the wrong turn to the right or to the left. It may take you on a place you never planned on being or never thought you would be. And it's happened too many times because the merchants of Vanity Fair are calling and pressuring and mocking. So we have to ask ourselves, where will our end be? 
Solomon says here in chapter 4, keep my commandments, he says, and live. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her. She is your life. Keep your heart, he says, with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And the wisdom of God is calling us to the path of life. And that's it. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for your word. And I just ask you to let it take firm hold and that we will hear your voice in your word, that you're calling us to the path of life through wisdom, Lord. And we just not take your word for granted. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.